first thing you want to be is an employer of choice. Like you've got to be an employer of choice. You've got to be somebody people want to work for. And the biggest part of that that a lot of, you know, people struggle with is how do you create psychological safety in the workplace? How do you allow a place for people to be seen, to be heard, to be known and accepted so they'll best contribute? Because people will actually, believe it or not, work for you for less money if they like you and if they feel valued by you and they feel like you see and hear them and, and they're known and they're accepted for their contribution, especially millennials. Millennials are big on contribution back to leadership. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Todd Palmer, and today we're digging into entrepreneurship and business ownership lessons that helped Todd initially turn his business around from, in 2006, from being $600,000 in debt, which is deep in the hole. He turned that around and made the Inc. 5000 list for the fastest growing businesses six times. Eventually exited that business, and now he teaches others how to succeed in real estate and entrepreneurship. We dig into the lessons that he learned that helped him turn his business around in a nuts and bolts sense. We actually talk about what he did to turn that business around and so much more. We talk about how to find and retain the best talent in your business and so much more. And I'll tell you what, guys, talent and people in our real estate businesses have really helped set us apart. They helped us through the COVID recession helping us keep our properties occupied, help the revenue keep coming in, help the rents keep coming in, even through the eviction moratorium and everything that happened in the wake of the COVID pandemic. So this is very important for real estate investors out there. And Todd's a very entertaining guy to talk to. So a lot of great lessons in this one. I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment building and self-storage syndications. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call with me, and I look forward to speaking with you then. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you, you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. People see your reviews and they think, hey, I need to listen to this show because this person learned something. And you know what? I see your reviews too. And I appreciate that so, so much. It gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling every single time because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you haven't done so yet, no matter what podcast app you use and you enjoy the show, take a moment, look us up, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're helping you escape the Wall Street casino. Once again, our guest today is Todd Palmer. A lot of lessons in business and entrepreneurship in this one. Without any further ado, here we go. Todd, thank you for joining us today. Taylor, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to talk about entrepreneurship and everything else that you have to teach us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do and how you help people that are, you know, building businesses? Yeah. So kind of a quick bio is I, I currently run a company called Extraordinary Advisors, where I coach leaders on inside out leadership. The, the, the philosophy behind that is in order to lead your company or lead your business or even lead your family, you must first lead yourself. And how do I know that? Um, because I was a CEO for 25 years. And in that 25 years, I had two coaches and I should have had coaches much longer than I did because I didn't know what I didn't know. And in that space, I, I got a call probably nine, 10 years into my entrepreneurial journey. I was, a, I was very much a rugged individual as an entrepreneur. 
And I thought I had to be all things to all people all the time, which I've now learned is a version of a form of imposter syndrome. And the call came from, uh, of all places, my bank. And they called and said, hey, you're out of formula. You have a little $2 million staffing business in Metro Detroit. And you're 600, you owe us $600,000 and we'd like our money. And from that, I did what most great leaders do is I immediately got into bed for three days and didn't get out of bed. Because, you know, it's, it's if we just bury our head, the, the storm will go over us. And once I got up and I got my act together, I hired a coach. And in that process, in that space, I realized there was a lot I didn't know. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs build themselves jobs and don't really learn how to build themselves a business. And that, so by uh, seven, eight years later after that, we finally paid off all the debt, which was awesome. No discounts, every penny paid in full. Nice. And uh, the business uh, took this miraculous hockey stick and it grew. And, and on that space, of that path of growth, we made the Inc. 5000 as one of America's fastest growing companies six times. From there, I hired my second coach who helped me kind of figure out what I wanted to do with my life to create a life by design. I exited my staffing company a little over four years ago, wrote a best-selling book called From Suck to Success, uh, an extraordinary guide to entrepreneurship. Love that. And now I work with entrepreneurs every day, helping them design a lot, you know, design the life they want, get out of their own way. Like I had to get out of my own way so that they can truly live a life that's not only financially fulfilling, but also completely rewarding on multiple levels. Awesome. Well, I love that. And, you know, I, I have to ask about hiring that first coach. How did you know, for one, how did you know that was the path to take? And then for two, you know, I'd love to dig into what they actually taught you to, to help you turn the business around. But let's first start with, you know, the why and the how you knew that that was the path to go as opposed to... So I, I, I realized I couldn't get out of the problem myself. I didn't know what to do. If I knew what to do, I wouldn't have gotten where I was. <laughs> sure. you know, you're like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but you know, I was in my mid-30s by then. I like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm drowning in debt. I'm a single parent. My kid and I are going to be homeless. And I call it the itty-bitty shitty committee in our head. It's all that imposter syndrome <laughs> just chirping in my ears. And so I, I finally decided that the most important thing for me as part of being vulnerable is to ask for help. And so I did. Um, I hired uh, someone to help me not only change the, the landscape of the company, he taught me how to refinancials, first thing. Taught me how to focus on margin, not revenue, second thing. And ultimately taught me in how to, to lead on a day-to-day basis. And in his philosophy, and his mindset, he was a, an excellent golfer. He was a college golfer. And you, you got to play the shot you've got. Not the shot you duffed and not the putt you're going to take. You got to play the shot you have. Because for me, I would, I would project out two or three steps ahead and that never turned out. And then and when those didn't happen, my imposter syndrome would flare and it would tell me how much of a failure I was. But really, which my second coach, Danny Friedland, taught me, he was a neuroscientist. So I went from a business coach to a neuroscientist. Not a, not a bad transition when you're working <laughs> with a guy, going back to my first coach, Greg, who had a $600 million company. And my second coach was uh, the guy who coaches Alex at Conscious Capitalism and other well-known leaders. And like, it's kind of like, how did I get into this money to this party? They're actually coaching me too. I can't believe it. And so Danny taught me that, you know, failure is really nothing more than a word in the dictionary. The neuroscience is incredibly clear that the only way we learn is through trial and error. And we learn more when we, we don't succeed initially. But part of imposter syndrome, especially when you're a smart person or a bright person, is you get, you know, this version, I have to be the expert and I have to have all the answers to all the problems all the time. Well, we all have a limited capacity. So when I'm coaching people now, I often reflect back on the struggles I faced. So the, these, you know, these coaches taught me so much, not only about, about running my company and running my staff, but also leading them not managing them. Mm, interesting. So rather than 
uh, maybe micromanaging is the word I want to lean toward, but rather than getting into the minutia of what they're working on, you're maybe helping them see the bigger picture of, of what they're working on and how that all plays in, or can we dig into that, that a little bit yeah, of what sure. that so, meant? So the, mis- yeah, the mistake I made was that, well, first of all, I thought I could only hire people with experience. Then we came up and that didn't work. Well, we, we came up with a better model for us and it's called hire for DNA, not for resume. <laughs> so in my staffing business, I would h- go to, you know, mid-tier restaurants and, and other places where customer service was highly sought after and highly taught and highly valued. And I ended up hiring people who had a, a great resume who matched our core values. And then we taught them how to be a good recruiter. But it's a whole lot easier to teach recruiting than human nature. And it's rather be, work, you know, you, you're like, again, you, you laugh because you're like, oh, gosh, that's so obvious. Oh, no, I like, I got your resume. And Taylor, you can do all these great things. Come work for my company away from my competition. I'm like, all you do is bring your bad habits to me. I'm like, oh, my gosh, mm-hmm. I can't believe I did that. And did it over and over and over again. So the, so the first thing I realized is I had to hire differently. Second thing is I became incredibly financially transparent. I shared the numbers with the team. Here's the revenue. Here's the margin. Here's where we are. If we lost money, I would tell them, hey, I'm going to backfill this week out of my own pocket. We make money. We share in the abundance. So then they understood that every little step they did contributed to the bottom line and the success of the organization. The third thing I learned was I didn't know how to delegate. And what I would do is thing called advocate. I would advocate it to you. Say, hey, Taylor, good. You got it. And I would send you on your way. Now what I would have learned and what I teach my clients when I'm coaching them is people respect what the boss inspects. So Taylor, imagine business is a game. Here's the success. Here's what a successful outcome on a daily, weekly, monthly, and quarterly basis looks like for your role. And we're going to measure that on a daily, weekly, monthly basis in some cases. Now, the, the daily can just be something you keep, you keep track of it. And we talk about it once a week. But a lot of my clients do a daily huddle. And then we, you know, the piece is what worked well yesterday, what, what didn't go so well. You know, what was your win? What was your loss? And we learned those things. And we found that the more we got the, the, the employee engaged, those teachable moments would come out of these, these frequent conversations. So it didn't have to be micromanagement. Um, it was more like I, I kind of, I got a, a client of mine is a big football fan. And I always kind of say, hey, you can script out the first 20 plays of your football game. But if you're going with a run, a run offense and they've got nine in the box on a defensive, you might want to pass. You can, you can run those nine. You can get your running back all beat up and your quarterback can get injured and all that kind of stuff. Or you can play, hey, I see the defense. I'm going to audible. I'm going to transition to a different play. And that's what we found was being very nimble in pivoting in those spaces. You know, when you're $600,000 in debt, you don't got a whole lot more to lose. So we're going to, you know, we're going to do a couple more hail Marys. We're going to couple it, move a couple of things around so that we can, we can win this game. And, and it goes into what is my intention, which keeps me the higher neocortex of my brain versus my expectation, which sits in the fight or flight amygdala part of my brain. And, and that's what, again, Friedland taught me. He's like, the more you can operate at your highest functionality, the better a leader you can, you'll be, the more of a teacher you'll be, and the better your company will perform because you're running at an optimal level. Interesting. So focusing on our intention rather than anything else, maybe it's more a more empowering mindset or it helps us that that kind of comes across in the way we communicate with our teams and, and helps them live in that same mental space. I just want to dig into that a little yeah, bit more. So, and- so it's really intention expect versus expectation. Mm-hmm. If you take a look at the active learning cycle, you know, my, my situation, I'm $600,000 in debt. My intention is to get out of debt. If I had the expectation that I'm going to get out of debt in two years, it wouldn't have happened. So when I have an intention, then I create a strategy around the intention to get out of debt. And then we get feedback on it. So it's an iterative loop. What, what Friedland taught me was in the space of intentionality, it's and both. 
like, okay, I tried that. Yeah, I can try this. I, I operate functionally. Where if I go into expectation, I either won or I lost. I either got the A in my class or I didn't. So we're, we're talking a little bit about, you know, intention versus expectation. Intentionality is and both expectation is either or. So you mentioned earlier when we were doing the pre-interview about, you know, you're, you're in the market to buy a home. The expectation expectation version of buying a home would look something like this. You're looking to buy a home and you want to live in this town on this street for this price point. It's very much binary. This is the only metric of success for Taylor to buy a home. The flip of that is if you move it to an intention, your intention would be, I'd like to live in this community, much bigger swath. And I'd like to live in this community in a home that matches these three criteria. But if it doesn't get them all, that's also okay. And I want to live within 30 minutes of a relative or family member, but I'm willing to drive 45. If you're a real estate agent, you've opened up a much bigger swath for me to help you be successful in your search to buy your forever home versus one street, one price point, one city. So the, that's, that's a version of win-lose expectation because when you don't get that, then you're disappointed versus you're out of being intentional. And in a space of intentionality, you don't get the first home you want, for example. You can move on to a second home or a third home. Be patient, wait for that other home to pop onto the marketplace that you're really excited about. And that keeps you in a higher functioning process as well as it regulates your mood. It regulates your cortisol. All those those chemistry things come into play. Okay, okay. So I was wondering if you were heading in the direction of say dealing with setbacks or disappointments or when things don't quite go our way, because at least in this context, right, people, not myself included, but people are losing offers on homes left mm-hmm. and right. And if we get too glued to the idea of this is the thing that I need, whereas, you know, if we're more intentional, we can be more flexible. Then when those setbacks happen, we can just roll with it, learn from it and move on to the next one, move forward. For sure. And even like you use the word need, I, I need to have this home on this street. Well, mm-hmm. if none of those homes are for sale, how's your need going to get met? Which, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just makes it hard. And, mm-hmm. you know, as we go through these these next couple of years, and there's still a, a, an inventory shortage of homes. Well, how can you be more flexible? How can you be more intentional? I have a client of mine, part of her life by design work we've been doing, she wanted to move from Ohio to Florida because she wanted to live in warm weather. And she created a very wide path of, I want to live in this area. It was like an hour radius of Fort Myers, Florida. She goes down there. Just beyond that radius was a brand new development. She got a great home. It's being custom built to her mindset around her design for a price she was willing to pay. Been down there, visited the school. It's, it's something that she's super excited about versus the only way she can do it is one way. Nice. Okay. I gotcha. I also wanted to dig into very early on, you mentioned about your first coach helping you focus Mm -hmm. on margin rather than revenue. And I I thought that was an interesting point that I'd like to dig into what that really meant for your business. Did that mean raising prices? Did that mean cutting expenses or, you know, how did that translate to the actual operation of your business? Great, great question. So first, first place we started was working with me. Because so I defined success for my business to only have a, tw- I had to have a twenty million dollar revenue company. That was in the staffing space. That's put, that put you right for acquisition. It puts you as a metric of success. Never got into the margin of it all. So I'm chasing that. I'm chasing the dream, and I'm never going to get there. So what we, what I learned instead was, it's all, you know, calls it margin in my book. It's a chapter on margin magic. It's how do we make more money for the same amount of work? How do we make more money on the same hour sold, for example? And so what we did is first of all, I had to change my definition of success. Definition of success was 
bottom line met revenue, not top line revenue. Second part of success was defined like this. We take a look at our pricing. Our pricing was very low. Uh, we raised prices. Sa third thing is we also realized, and this is embarrassing to say, we were the bank for our clients. Hmm. So we were giving them interest-free loans because we were letting their receivables go out 90 days. Oh. Yeah, not so smart, but mm -hmm. I didn't know any better. My, you know, I'm in, you know, back to Detroit. I get Kelly Services World Headquarters, two miles from my office, and they're giving out 90-day terms. Didn't realize that Kelly Services has, you know, a bank vault of cash and I got two credit cards and a couple of nickels to rub together. <laughs> different places, different terms. Uh, the third thing is we then went through the PNL and we looked through every single line item. Where could we move the nickels? Within a year, we moved my margin almost 14 points. Wow. Because I was running, I was running on fumes and we got it to a point where it could actually become sustainable. And then we then went back to the marketplace and we, we changed our messaging around what we did. In the beginning, we were, you know, basically anything for a buck staffing, I would, I'll take any job order I can get. We pivoted into more of a sports model or a Hollywood model. How can I rep the best talent in the manufacturing space and then sell it back into the marketplace, which at the time was really different. This is during the recession, by the way. So during the recession, nobody was hiring anyway. So, I, <laughs> so, so we, going back to the, you know, the intention was to get out of debt. The expectation, the, the intention, not expectation was to find a, a way to do that. And so we were, and we had a lot of flexibility. So we started asking people, okay, when we get out of, when Taylor, when you get out of debt, what's the first job you're going to rehire for? That once you laid everybody off, who are you going to bring back first? And we kept hearing the same couple of different manufacturing categories. I'm going to need CNC programmers. I'm going to need, you know, G6 welders. I'm going to need these kind of people because they're hard to find. Even in bad times, they're hard to find. So in good times, they're even worse, hard, harder to find. So what we figured out is if I get an inventory of what the marketplace is going to need when it comes back, start selling that back in proactively as customers are starting to turn their businesses around, then that's going to give me a leg up. And people say, oh, I really need your guy. I'll find a way to, I'll find a way to get the owners to, to bring him on. <laughs> Perfect. Great. Here's what he costs and I need to get paid faster. But I got the candidate versus having to go out and find him. I've got what you need just in time delivery. Here's you can be. Fred could be there on Monday. Here's my terms. Here's my price. Well, you're more than expensive than everybody else, but I got what you need. I got what you need. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I like the way that you repositioned your business and, and focused more on the need in the market rather than trying to fill any hole that you could find. Well, and, and, and the other model was incredibly soul-sucking. Mm -hmm. It was not rewarding. It was a commodity and it didn't separate me in the space. So, you know, if for anybody who, who's listening today, want to, you want to differentiate, differentiate your business or your portfolio, how can you be different than other people? Because if you're seen as a commodity, I, my experience has taught me all I can charge are commodity prices. I'm seen as a, as a select provider or a unique niche expert in whatever I do. You know, I've, I've got a client of mine who does um, Airbnb rentals. That's his entire business. And he's tried a couple of different markets and he's kind of found what he does best and it, it, he wh what he doesn't do so well. So we're getting to stop doing things he doesn't do well, getting to do the things he does do well. And part of that is too, his business is very much focused on Airbnb advocacy. So he has his portfolio of properties but he's also now out there talking to municipalities, state, federal lawmakers about the, the the value of having an Airbnb program in your local community versus, hey, we don't want it. We don't want to have the, you know, the, the, the transient uh, renters, things like that. And he's got a whole model now where he's become very, very clear that he's the Airbnb regulations guy. Nice. Nice. I like that. I really want to dig into while we're here strategies or mindsets or, or, or what have you that help you get 
the best employees, particularly in those tough times. You have you were going after folks that were already in high demand and already hard to find when times were good, right? Mm-hmm. But when times are bad and they're still hard to find, well, we're still in tough times. And as a real estate investor, some of our properties were helped out big time by having great people in them in the offices working with our mm-hmm. tenants. And I'd just love to dig into the principles behind finding the best people to work in your business. Great question. I do. I do a, just did a whole speech on this for a manufacturing association. And the first thing I always point out to, to an audience is people don't leave a company. They leave a boss. First thing you want to be is an employer of choice. Like you've got to be an employer of choice. You've got to be somebody people want to work for. And the biggest part of that that a lot of you know people struggle with is how do you create psychological safety in the workplace? How do you allow a place for people to be seen, to be heard, to be known and accepted so they'll best contribute? Because people will actually, believe it or not, work for you for less money if they like you and if they feel valued by you and they feel like you see and hear them and, and they're known and they're accepted for their contribution, especially millennials. Millennials are big on contribution back to leadership. So you have to, first of all, become an employer of choice. Secondarily, how can, like we had to figure out, how can you potentially recruit differently? And how can you be out there? What does your bench look like? If you know you got to be hiring and you're currently fully staffed, well, how are you building your bench? Because eventually someone will leave. They'll either retire or they'll you know, be relocated due to a spouse or they'll just quit. Well, who's, who's going to come off your beds? Recruiting has often been seen as such a reactive thing. Oh gosh, someone's leaving. I better go find somebody. Well, if you make recruiting and finding and building that bench because you're promoting what an employer of choice you are, that's huge because at the end of the day, the really, and this is the key, the best source for your next great employee is your current great employee. And you've got to hone that relationship. I have a, a client of mine who's doing a big hiring right now, a manufacturing company, and he's offering, I think, $2,000 to any employee who brings on a next, his next hire. Nice. So we took a look at his, you know, his, his metrics of, you know, recruiting costs to recruiters, his cost to an Indeed or a Zip recruiter. It's like, I might as well just give that money to my employee who refers a buddy of mine or a buddy of his, because then, first of all, the story tells us that was, hey, if, if Todd re- uh, refers Taylor to Steve, I, Todd, want Taylor to be successful because Taylor is an extension of representation of me. Mm-hmm. Secondarily, I'm not going to refer somebody who's, who's going to be, you know, a loser in the workforce because it, it negatively impacts me. Mm-hmm. So win-win. He pays, he pays the two grand out over 90 days and he's had to offer a thousand dollar sign-on bonus. Nice. But he's got plenty of work. So every, so he's a manufacturer. Every hour, every day, that machine sits empty and no one's operating it. No one's running it. It costs him a thousand dollars. So know your numbers. I mean, I, I feel like I've seen over the years, you know, just of, of being in the corporate world, you know, in years past and, you know, well over a decade, many companies do tend to focus on, they're, they're less focused on that machine being empty than they should be, right? They, it's better to have somebody in that seat because an employee should be seen not as a cost, but as right. a, a revenue center, right? They're making you money. They shouldn't be costing you money, no matter what they're doing in your business. Well, an employee really is your greatest asset. I mean, they really are. At the end of the day, every problem in business comes down to one thing, people. I don't have enough of them. I don't have the right ones. I've got underperformers. I've got problems with my people. So if we see our employee as an investment, not as an expense, then if you think it, you know, think about a great, you know, great athlete, a great performer, you get a, an MVP caliber, an all pro caliber athlete. Well, they're worth two, three of an average employee. So, you know, pay, pay, 
if someone's a rock star, pay them rock star wages. Now, that's the way you get the problem is, well, so-and-so wants rock star wages and they have, you know, roadie <laughs> performances. Well, that's a different conversation. But I, I'm seeing a lot of increases in, in wages across a lot of spaces. I'm seeing a lot of clients who are struggling to keep their employees. But the ones who are keeping them or dealing with having to renegotiate income, it's because the employees coming to them and saying, hey, I really like working here. Some recruiter contacted me on LinkedIn. I did an interview. I got like a, you know, an X percent raise. I, I, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a parent. I'm a single parent. I'm a spouse. I need that money. I'd love to stay here if you can match it. Versus that employer doesn't have a relationship with that employee. The employee puts in their two weeks notice. He throws them out after one day and they move on. That second one seems a lot more common in, in larger companies where there might not be as constructive of a relationship. Well, it's, it's really simple. The ma- it's math. It's really, it's honestly math as we're talking about it. There's 7 million more jobs open today than there are people for them. So, I mean, it's really, you, you cannot like the wage. You cannot like the, the great resignation, but there's a bunch of jobs out there and not a bunch of people. And it's certainly you can take a look at it if you're a small employer or even a larger employer. How can you outsource the work? How can you redefine the work? How can you take a look at the scope of work? But a lot of cases, even if you have to get technology in some cases to replace the human being, you still need people. Absolutely. You still need people. I love that. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Todd, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? So I think the best investment I made, I made this when I hired my first coach, I committed to be a lifelong learner. So I'm constantly adding new tips and tricks and ideas to what I do, reading books, attending seminars. Again, having you know, I've had a coach in my life since 2006. What are we in two, tw- 2022? I put a lot of money into this because at the end of the day, I, I, I am the CEO of my business, but I'm also the CEO of my family and CEO of my life. So I have to invest in myself because demands are always going to be high. If I can upscale my resources to meet those demands, I will actually be a, a an above average performer. And that gives me a lot of pride and satisfaction. Nice. I like that. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? <laughs> well, I don't know how much time we have for this. I've got a whole list. <laughs> I, I think the, the biggest invest, the worst investment I've made is thinking that experience trumps talent. And when I would hire people to work in my company, I, I would hire people at one point with a lot of experience. And if you've got you know 10 years of experience over seven employers, I kind of got to wonder, maybe you've got a lot of experience, but do you have a lot of talent? Versus you know having a great, you said the great restaurant experience and I had this awesome, I had an awesome waiter, his name was Jeremy. And I said, Dude, you're you're amazing. How how are you so good at what you do? And he kind of laid out his process. He's working at Olive Garden, but it wasn't like he was working at you know a high end steak place. I said, hey, if you ever want a job, I'd love to have you come come interview with me. 
couple weeks later, he calls me and says, hey, I just found out my wife's pregnant. I can't be working weekends and evenings at Olive Garden. Can I, is the interview option still available? He was with me for over a decade and he was, I think, my number one or number two performer every year that he was with me because I saw the talent, I honed the talent, and it paid dividends. Nice, nice. I like that. Great point. My favorite question here at the end of the show is, what is the most important lesson you've ever learned in business and investing? You know, certainly you touched on a little bit of it earlier, margin over revenue, that that, that from a business perspective. Also, I think it's important for me anyway, especially when it comes to investing, where do not only do I, where, where do I invest my money, which is certainly a, a, an asset, but for me, I believe money is a renewable asset. Where do I invest my time and energy? And for me, I really pivoted so much around the redefining what success meant to me. At one point, I mentioned earlier, success is a $20 million company. What I really figured out for me was success is freedom and flexibility. I get to do what I want, where I want, with whom I want, as often as I want. And sometimes those can be really expensive trips. And sometimes it could be spending a Wednesday in the park with my family when everybody else is working. It, it's I think I would rather, for me, invest in creating meaningful memories than buying more stuff. Nice, nice. And time is the only thing we cannot get more of, but we can definitely get more money. So I appreciate your- I could not agree more. Emphasis on that. Well, Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more, if they want to find your book from Suck to Success, I love that title, by the way, where can they track you or all of that down? Yeah, well, any, absolutely. So any, I'm happy to give away a free chapter of my book. It's actually coming awesome. out in audio in the next 30 days. And all they have to do is go from suck to success.com, download a free chapter of the book as my gift to your listeners. Anybody who wants to learn more about my coaching program, feel free to reach out to me at Todd at extraordinaryadvisors.com. And I'd be happy to schedule a call and chat with you a little bit more to see how I can help you get unstuck. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating interview on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them to the tribe. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.